Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today I'm joined again with Dr. Roger Reese on June 22nd, 2021. An episode was published where Dr. Reese joined the show and we had a conversation about the life that Diocletian lived, who was a former Roman emperor. Dr. Reese joins the show again, and today we're going to have a conversation about the concept of the Tetrarchy, which is related to Diocletian's life. Dr. Reese is professor in the School of Classics at the University of St. Andrews, based in Scotland. The majority of his research focuses on Latin literature and Roman history from the late Republic to late antiquity. He has written numerous publications over his career, including authoring the book, Diocletian and the Tetrarchy, which was published by Edinburgh University Press. And he's also working on a book biography of Diocletian for Princeton University Press. Welcome back on the show, Roger. Well, thank you for inviting me back, Andrew. It's uh, lovely to see you again and uh, to be talking, uh, talking about things tetrarchic. It's wonderful to see you and to chat with you again, Roger. So to create sufficient background and context for the conversation we're going to have today, Roger, and then we can work our way into the details. What was the Tetrarchy? The Tetrarchy, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a word that the ancients used um, of what we're going to be talking about this afternoon, but it's a term that modern historians use to denote both the college of four emperors who constituted the, uh, the, the so-called tetrarchy, which, which comes from two Greek words, one meaning four and one meaning power. So that's what tetrarchy means, the power of four individuals. Um, but it also denotes the time span um, of, that, uh, of, of that particular form of government, which is so 284 through to, depending exactly when you date its, uh, date its demise, um, sort of 312, round about then. So it's uh, so the Tetrarchic era is sometimes sometimes a slightly inaccurately um, used um, of that period, the end of the third century and the beginning of the fourth century, because it denotes in modern terms the government that we're ruling at the time. The, the concept uh, clearly existed uh, during this period of time, but you mentioned that uh, contemporaries at the time weren't using the term Tetrarchy. Um, do you happen to know offhand the first person, it could have been a scholar, that, uh, that, well, that mentioned the gosh, term or wrote about the term I, Tetrarchy? I don't, but I, if I had to put my money on it, I suspect it would have been a German scholar in the 19th century. That's, uh, the, the, the German scholarship was, uh, was, was pioneering the history of late antiquity in the 19th century. So I suspect, but I don't know for sure, that, it's, uh, that it dates to then. Okay, okay. And uh, so let's let's chat about um, so so when someone who hasn't spent a lot of time with the material or, mm-hmm. or, or studying this topic, when they think of any empire, uh, Roman Empire being being an empire, um, I think it's easy for someone to think about, well, there's probably one one ruler. So can you speak about the uh, and there certainly was for a period of time in in in, in Rome, right? So can you speak about, uh, kind of leading up to 284, what the geopolitical environment would have been like in, in Rome? Uh, said, said it another way, why, did this, why, why do scholars believe this, this concept called the Tetrarchy came into existence? Yeah, there's a, there's a there's a lot to there's a there's a lot of ways one could go about uh, answering that. So I'll try to I'll try to keep things relatively brief. But you're absolutely right. When people think of the Roman Empire, they essentially think in terms of an individual emperor ruling at the time, and that was certainly the case for many decades of the centuries of the uh, of the Roman Empire. So starting, for example, with Augustus, the first emperor, he was emperor by himself. Um, and on his death, another man became emperor by himself, etc. So you had a system of monarchy, that's the rule of the individual. Um, and that sort of system uh, dominated uh, Roman politics for a few hundred years. Um, and in particular, within that system of succession of one emperor by the next guy, the next guy was usually the biological or adopted son 
of the deceased emperor. So that's to say succession was dynastic as well as monarchic for most of the uh, most of the Roman Empire. Um, there were occasional um, sort of disruptions to that model when normally brought about by coup, by, by an assassination of a sitting emperor um, or civil war, you know, a, a, a larger scale uh, civil disruption where perhaps, for example, one ruling house would be uh, would be finished off in in a bloody coup and replaced by a new house. But nonetheless, that new house would adopt that model of monarchical rule with dynastic succession by the adopted or biological son of the deceased emperor. So that model played itself out several times um, in in the in the decades and centuries following Augustus. Now, by the time we get through to the third century, that model still persisted. But um, in the 50 or so years, from 238 through to Diocletian's accession in 284, there was a huge turnover in the number of uh, Roman emperors who still nonetheless were essentially trying to assert that same model, their own right to rule, probably to be succeeded by their natural or, 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 or adopted son um, on, on their own death. But no individual emperor managed to assert his power for long enough or geographically over wide enough area for it to for for for, for enough recognition to sort of build up and, and secure that uh, that future um, for, for him. So he had a huge turnover of emperors in the uh, in the third century. Um, there were other pressures in the third century at the same time and i don't want to get into a conversation it distracts into conversation about the cause and effect here of what what was triggering what as it were but there were pressures on the roman frontiers particularly on the rhine and the danube frontiers so that's, that's no, northern roman um, empire um, there were failures in foreign policy such as the capture of the emperor valerian by the Persians, he was caught alive by the Persians in 259, and he died in captivity. So that was a sort of great uh, that sent shockwaves um, through through the Roman world. There were uh, regional um, regional micro empires such as the Gallic Empire set up by a man called Posthumus in uh, in in. Um, northern Gaul, so that's uh, northeast um, modern France and through into the Low Countries, and the Palmyrene separatist regime set up by Zenobia in, uh, in, in, in Syria. So you can see all sorts of political, geopolitical pressures at the same time as a massive turnover of emperors, um, all trying to assert their right to the, be the monarch and to be succeeded by their son. So that relatively chaotic geopolitical situation by the time Diocletian came to the throne in 284, um, and the means by which he did that, I won't, I won't sort of reprise here, because as you, you, as you said, we, we, we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, but there was nothing unusual about the way he came to power according to the norms of what had been going on in the previous 50 years. It's what he did after he came to power that was uh, perhaps more radical. So let's, let's go to Diocletian's life. Well, I'm going to ask it, I'm going to ask it this way. I'm not going to ask a, like a leading, leading question, Roger. So, so what's, what's known then about um, the period of time and, and who, uh, who actually made the decision? to cre create the the, uh, the 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 tetrarchy uh, that's that's one of the great that's one of the great unknowns um diocletian must diocletian himself will have been central to that decision making and he may have had complete individual and sort of whole ownership um of the concept of this collegiate government of four people um it wasn't as if he was uh as far as we can tell listening to political advisors or political philosophers who, who said you know Here, here's an idea why don't you run with it it was probably something that uh, he, he he thought of himself to, to to a certain extent but we don't we don't know that for sure but we have no other evidence of a sort of inner circle of political advisors giving him uh, giving him sort of 
political theory, um, uh, uh, as it were. So it was probably Diocletian himself. Okay. So, um, and I think you might have mentioned the year earlier, but what, what year did this concept, the Tetrarchy, start? And can you speak about what actually happened? Well, when the, the Tetrarchy itself didn't come into being until 293, but there is a sort of, it's possible to plot the road to Tetrarchy from the monarchy that Diocletian uh, took up when he became emperor in, in, in 284. And that is in 285, he appointed as a fellow emperor, a fellow soldier, um, a successful soldier from the, uh, from the Balkan Peninsula, a man by the name of Maximian. And that period, so 285 through to 293, is probably technically better referred to as the diarchy, the rule of two. Um, but sometimes um, it's, it, it, it kind of gets absorbed under the, uh, under the general idea of it, of it being tetrarchic. But yeah, that rule of two, um, initially Maximian probably had the rank of Caesar, with Diocletian holding the rank of Augustus. Originally, those two Latin words, Augustus and Caesar, denoted names, were names denoting individuals. By late antiquity, they denoted political rank, imperial rank, with the Augustus being superior in a hierarchy to the Caesar. So it is probably the case, though we do lack absolute evidence for this, that Maximian was initially appointed to the position of Caesar to Diocletian as Augustus. But very soon after taking up imperial office, Maximian himself was elevated to the rank of Augustus. You had two individuals with similar, with identical rank of Augustus. In 293, that college of two, which we refer to as the diarchy, was expanded to a college of four by the appointment of two further individuals, one man called Galerius and another called Constantius. That's Constantius I to distinguish him from, uh, from, from his grandson who, who, who went on to be emperor um, in, in, in the middle of the fourth century. So Constantius I and Galerius, each of those guys was appointed to the position of Caesar. And in particular, um, Constantius, the, Constantius I was the Caesar to Maximian, who was his Augustus, and as it were, in modern terms, sort of line manager, uh, uh, as it were, whereas Galerius was the Caesar to Diocletian, um, who, who was his line manager, as it were. So a, a college of four, but with a hierarchy within it, of so two Augusti, to use the plural, and two Caesars, um, and each of the Caesars directly answerable to one Augustus, but nonetheless a collegiality shared amongst the four. Now, we don't know when that the idea of an expansion of the diarchy through to Tetrarchy came into someone's head, that's someone probably being Diocletian. We don't know when that happened or why that happened. We just know the dates and the individuals who took up the, uh, took up the positions. Um, so that's, that's how the first Tetrarchy, as historians refer to it, uh, came into being. Going from a period of one emperor to essentially four emperors, right? Because they, they would have been, uh, for all intents and purposes, considered emperors at this point, right? During the mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tetrarchy. So yes. there's, there's a lot of uh, em em emperors now in the empire. Um, can you speak about what's known about how uh, administration uh, during this, this initial period would have been uh, divvied up amongst these individuals? Yeah, yes, a certain amount is known, is known um, about that. But you're absolutely right. These, these guys were, each of these four guys was recognized as an emperor. And we know that, for example, because they were minting uh, from, from, from coins minted, um, so including their imperial uh, titles or victory titles that appear on inscriptions or even in um, surviving uh, legal evidence, um, sort of laws and edicts, that sort of thing. So we, their names, their, um, their ranks as, as as, uh, as 
as emperors are well attested. So they they definitely were recognised um, as emperors. But how their pow how power was divvied up amongst them has been subject to a certain amount of scholarly sort of controversy um, over the years. It seems not to have been the case that they were simply given each each of the four men was simply given absolute. Uh, legal competence within his own geographical area, for example. But let me just clarify this, that these guys, although they were a college of emperors, they weren't physically together very much at all. Um, and one of the features of tetrarchic government, one of the sort of notable features of tetrarchic government, which really does differentiate it from, say, the Roman Empire of the Augustan period or the Neronian period, you know, earlier centuries, is this idea of, of the, is the idea of provincial capitals. So, for example, uh, Trier in in, uh, in modern Germany, or Milan uh, in, in Italy, Nicomedia in Turkey, or Sirmium in Serbia, were tetrarchic capitals, and the regular base for one emperor, but not all four. And so this meant that there were, there was an emperor, not in every corner of the empire, the, the empire was too big, but in many areas of, of the empire. And so that, so the, the imperial college would have been represented in a greater, so, uh, in a greater geopolitical, greater geopolitical range than had ever been um, the, ever been the case before so they rarely met they, they they were physically not often together but nonetheless despite the despite the geographical disparity or dispersion of these guys across hundreds of miles thousands of miles of the roman empire um, it seems not to have been the case that each of them was individually responsible for say legislation um, or um, setting of tax measures, for example, um, or the decision whether or not to persecute the Christians, which is what a particular policy that was pursued um, by, by, by the Tetrarchy. Um, those deci single decisions were taken, it seems, or the most important decisions were taken by the men who held the rank of Augustus and the men who held the rank of Caesar were expected to uh, enact those policy decisions in the areas where they happened to be, um, as it were. Now, there may have been some minor uh, judicial powers given to the Caesars, but on the whole, um, the evidence suggests that um, the ambition of this government was to be united in its policy making and policy application uh, processes. Um, we can see this, for example, you, you asked about uh, divvying up power and administration. One of the features of tetrarchic um, administration was to increase the number of Roman provinces, not by conquering new land, but by dividing up the existing provinces into smaller units of authority. Um, and that happened empire-wide, so it wasn't just one of the tetrarchs deciding he was going to do it in his area, as it were. This, 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 was, this was replicated empire-wide. Um, another example we see uh, in the tetrarchic period, we can see separation in provincial governorships between civilian and military command. So no longer was one man in charge of the law, the tax collection, and the soldiers. In his own in his own province, um, which you know many of us now would see as, as a good thing, uh, that, that, that separation of those different spheres of uh, of control, because um, it doesn't allow one individual to become too powerful. Um, uh, and and uh, at the same time, the tetrarchy introduced a new level of civil service bureaucratic authority, and that was the empire was now divided into twelve diocese, uh, which in some applications in the modern world now is, 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 is a term relating to the Christian church, but absolutely certainly wasn't in its, in its original tetrarchic application. It's, it's a civilian, non-religious administrative uh, competency. And in charge of each diocese was a man, um, a, a, new, a new position was created um, called the vicarius, which is often translated into modern English as, as the vicar, but again, absolutely not a religious um, position. But we can see that that new level of 
administrative uh, control and the people appointed to it happening on an empire-wide level. So uh, the, the, the principle, the principle of tetrarchic government seems to have been one of united um, and, as it were, coherent application of the same policies across the empire. In contemporary terms, uh, Western Roman Empire is often referenced, uh, Eastern Roman Empire. In this period of time, because you, you, you mentioned um, there was four different, um, perhaps you used the term capitals or principles, some term like that, uh, denoting where it seemed these emperors uh, resided mo mo most of the time or, uh, you know, some period of time, but, but important spots. Um, in this period of time that we're speaking about, do, do you know or can you infer if they looked at the Roman Empire through that lens of there's a West and an East? One could be much more certain in answer to that question several decades later, after Constantine so, um, so sort of refounded the city um, uh, that, that we now know as Istanbul, but he knew as Constantinople. And that then became ultimately the kind of capital of the Eastern uh, Roman Empire, with Rome, um, at least notionally, um, being the, 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 the capital of the Western um, Roman Empire. But we're, we're, in a, we're in a sort of transitional period just before that. So an absolutely strict notion of the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire, I think, was yet to emerge. But nonetheless, there's something uh, radical about the move away from Rome as the sort of governing seat of power. Because in those cities that I mentioned, Trier, Milan, Nicomedia, uh, Sirmium, and also Thessalonica, actually, in, in, in northern Greece, sometimes used as an imperial provincial capital uh, in, in, in this period, Rome's name, doesn't, Rome's name doesn't feature. And Rome was, um, to a certain extent, um, neglected, at least in terms of being the regular place of accommodation of a of a sitting emperor um, at, at the time so that would have been radical but we hadn't quite yet got to the strict and explicit division between uh, between east and west so it's fair to say in this this period they they would have still seen it really as one empire I think people would have been encouraged to see it in those terms, Andrew. And uh, the reason I say that is that in things that would have uh, that were designed to affect the ordinary lives of ordinary people on the ground, such as legislation in financial matters, another 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 famous leg legislative act. Uh, pursued by the, the Tetrarchy is, is now referred to as the Edict of Maximal Prices, which is, a, which is an attempt to control inflation. Um, and the ambition of that edict was to be promulgated empire-wide. It says so explicitly uh, in, in its preamble. And so people were clearly being encouraged to think of the empire as a unified whole. I'll give you another example of this. There's a famous, uh, famous sculptural group, which is now, or it's two groups actually, um, which is now in the Vatican um, Library um, in, uh, in, in the Vatican. Um, two, two groups of two emperors, so four emperors in total, it is the Tetrarchy, and in their hands, these four individuals are holding an orb, which was a symbol of the world. Um, so each, each of them is seen to be participating in universal control rather than um, uh, demarcated, so regionalized control, as it were. So it's, and, and that sort of artwork w um, would have been replicated many times um, on, in coins um, as well as in sculptural form. Um, and um, would have been recognized by people as an icon of yeah, universal, uh, universal tetrarchic control, not, not regionalism, not regionalism, um, I think. You mentioned the, the diocese in this period of time. 
were they uh, the diocese? Were they considered the same as provinces, or is there a difference between those two concepts? There would be a certain number of provinces within each of the twelve dioceses, so it was a kind of higher level of uh, authority. I'm not sure that the creation of a diocese or the creation of dioceses would necessarily have impacted upon the ordinary lives of ordinary people. To go back to that to to, to that phrase, but it was it was probably an attempt to ease the workings of the increasingly large, the, the growing civil service. So you would now have a vicarius who was responsible for the appointment of provincial governors in all of the provinces within his diocese, um, as it were. But I don't suppose that uh, ordinary people on the ground would necessarily even know the existence um, of of, of that, just like in you know many in many modern states today, we don't necessarily always know what our civil servants do. We just know they exist. And to use an anachronistic um, concept as an as an analogy in contemporary t- t- times, it'd be like would it be like a, a country that has provinces, and then obviously the politics back then were were different. But would it be like a, a country that has provinces, and within the provinces, counties? Yes. Yes, that's yes, that's absolutely right. Yes, so yeah, it is. A, province, a, a province would be geographically determined, and a, di- a diocese also would be geographically determined. Uh, a diocese would be much bigger, but would contain um, would contain several or you know or more provinces. Yeah, it's just another level of uh, of administrative uh, responsibility and organisation. Uh, presumably, a drive towards greater efficiency in things such as tax collection. Okay. Did one of the two Augusti uh, have usurping power? Did did one of the two have m- more power or have the the most power in the in the empire? Um, we can only speculate about this, but we can speculate with some confidence. And this um, the, perhaps some of the most enticing evidence um, to to answer that question is religious in fact and um this 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 came up when we were talking about Diocletian a couple of weeks ago his close relationship with the divine figure zeus jupiter through his adoption of what a nickname as it were or the latin for that is signum through through the through through the name the signum jovius um, which means something like to do with Jove, to do with Jupiter. And he adopted um, that signum um, and um, Maximian, his co-Augustus, adopted a signum as well, but his was Herculeus. Um, like Hercules or associated with Hercules, you know, you know, it's, 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 it's some, something, something of, of that sort. And if you look to go back to mythology, if you go back to the relationship between Jupiter and Hercules in, as it were, established traditional Greco-Roman mythology, then certainly Jupiter was superior to, uh, to, to Hercules and had, had authority over him. So the assumption is that in that adoption of those two signa, um, which possibly dates to round about 287, 288, round about that. So actually before the establishment of the Tetrarchy proper, but after the establishment of the Diarchy, um, that those signa, well, they send out, they send out a, a variety uh, of messages and primarily religious ones, but they may also be sending out messages about an assumed political hierarchy where Diocletian had ultimate uh, control um, over uh, uh, over Maximian. Okay, but the records records are scant in t- in terms of uh, like communication or correspondence between the two, where it's very clear one one has that kind of usurping power. Yeah, we don't have um, the equivalent of uh, sort of. Uh, Political, political record keeping, or anything like that. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't have any letters between these two men. Um, our, our, our evidence um, for, from the Tetrarchic period is sort of notoriously and sort of deliciously partisan. In that uh, we have, for example, panegyrics addressed to Maximian that are very flattering of Maximian. Um, 
so uh, that that's very kind of pro-governmental in in some respects that sort of source we also have uh, another major source for this period are the christian authors lactantius and eusebius who were writing just a little bit after the demise of the tetrarchic system and both lactantius and eusebius are very aggressive in their denunciation of the tet of most of the tetrarchs and the tetrarchic system generally because because the tetrarchy pursued uh, policies of uh, of persecution of christians um, and we have to kind of try to piece together our modeling of the tetrarchy from disparate sources such as that you know very aggressive uh, very aggressive anti-tetrarchic sources such as those christian ones as well as very pro-tetrarchic um, sources such such as such as panegyrical court oratory but we don't have what we don't have is as it were um documentary sources that enable us to plot personal relationships or even professional relationships between individual uh, be, be, between individual tetrarchs so uh, so we just have to fill in the gaps as ancient historians often do um, as best we can there my understanding is diocletian didn't have a son and this is probably a very difficult question to answer um, but i'm going to ask the question anyways yeah if he had a suitable son do you think he would have created the tetrarchy and presuming he created it, but do you think the Tetrarchy would have occurred if Diocletian had a suitable son? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting question. A kind of a, what a what a what a kind of great what if question. What if Diocletian had had a son? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna break my answer into two parts um, there, Andrew. If Diocletian had had a son, it is. I'm having to speculate here, but it's plausible. It's it's clearly plausible to assume he would not have done anything much different to the many emperors who had uh, reigned, albeit very briefly, in the 50 years before he came to power in 284, and just tried to set up a family-based dynastic succession uh, model of of emperorship where his son would inherit power uh, after after his own death. Now, why would Diocletian, if he had a son? have thought of doing things um, any any differently. But uh, the second part of my answer, and I think I'm on sure ground here, is that if he had a son and didn't appoint him to be his successor, I think Diocletian would have encountered or risked encountering resistance from people around him such as uh, very powerful soldiers or or or, 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 um, or not 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 the diocletian bothered bothered to consult the senate uh, in, in rome very much but other kind of other kind of political heavyweights i think they would have been nervous about the idea that that, that diocletian had a son but was not uh, not inclined uh, to uh, to set that young man up for high political office thereafter. And the reason I say that is because for all its faults, and there are many faults with in, in, in the history of the Roman Empire, with the regular model of dynastic succession of power, is that every now and again, the guy who inherits power isn't competent. He's just not really up to the job. And, uh, and, then, the, and then, the, then the system then the system struggles. But on the other hand, one of the strengths of the, of the system of dynastic succession within a monarchy is that it allows for predictability and continuity. And in particular, kingmakers such as Praetorian Guard or other, uh, other groups of soldiers like the predictability uh, or liked the predictability um, of, of imperial succession. So I suspect if Diocletian had had a son, his bodyguard would have wanted that man appointed to be imperial um, to, to be the imperial successor. Um, so um, that's very speculative on my behalf, but I, I think I think that's where I, I think that's where I am. I, I, I prefaced uh, Roger to. to... Uh, that it would be a difficult quest question. Uh, you you handled that question very very well, and your response was very cogent. Um, so, 
in selecting the next Augustus and the next Caesar, what's what's known about uh, that 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 succession? Is it a, is it merely a case or simply a case of the given Augustus picking the next Augustus? Is it a case where the Caesar becomes the Augustus? So what's what's known about that? Okay, well, it, it, yeah, it's 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 a great question, and um, and it's again, it's 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 the, the the evidence as it survives to us is really tempting for us to uh, leap to conclusions, and I, I want to resist doing that and just be a little bit hesitant. But to go to go to go to go back to to go back to the facts, um, in two hundred ninety three, when the tetra when the tetrarchy came into being, um, those for with the appointment to Caesar of both Galerius and Constantius, um, Diocletian and Maximian were appointing two further men, both of whom had their cultural origins in the Balkan Peninsula, so they had a certain amount of cultural uh, commonality with those two guys, as well as uh, as well as professional experience. So they were they were soldiers. These were these men were career soldiers, and if they weren't already the sons-in-law of their respective um, of their respective Augustus, they became the sons-in-law of their respective Augustus on appointment to the Caesarship. So that is to say, put marriage alliances were either in place, which and, and then were then were as it were cemented by this political appointment, or um, the political appointments were made and were cemented by by marital by by, by marriage alliances there. So um, it's clearly not. We're not talking about, as it were, a meritocracy. It's not as if Diocletian and Maximian cast their eyes around to find who would who would definitely be the best candidate. Um, they they were they were looking to a very small circle of presumably um, messmates, as it were, high rank high ranking um, so, soldiers with whom they had done they had done some campaigning in the previous decades and whom they trusted. And 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 then um, uh, and and then appointed those guys. So they would have only looked to a very small circle of, of possible appointees. It wasn't clear at that stage from the evidence that survives to us from the years, say two hundred ninety-three through to three hundred and five, what would happen in three hundred and five. But what did happen in three hundred and five is that Diocletian and Maximian. Who were the Augusti retired? The first retired from imperial office. The, the first time that had ever happened, um, and so this is, so they were then technically out of the scene, and they were replaced as the Augusti by those two men who had held the rank for those twelve years as Caesar. Those two men were promoted um, to the to the to the position of Augustus, this was in May 305, and new men were appointed to the position of Caesar, so they filled the Caesarship vacancies, um, uh, as it were. And the one who, the one who filled uh, the Caesarship that Constantius had held was a man called Severus, um, who was not his son. Um, and the man who filled the vacancy created by the promotion of Galerius to the Augustusship was a man called Maximinus Dyer. Again, not Galerius's son. So that process of replacement, of succession of the, te of the Tetrarchy um, wasn't known about as far as we can tell until it actually occurred, but it followed a similar sort of pattern that we can see in the in the creation of the first tetrarchy, that is to say, biological kinship was not an important part of the uh, not an important part of the of, of, of the of the appointments. And in fact, um, in three hundred and five, with the appointment to the Caesarship of Severus and Maximinus Dyer. A, a particular individual called Maxentius, and sorry, there's lot, lots of Roman, powerful Roman men here whose names begin with M to potentially confusing effect. Um, Maxentius was an adult, and he was the son of Maximian. But on Maximian and Diocletian's retirement, Maxentius was not appointed to the Tetrarchy. So it looks like they, they're explicitly going out their way 
to not appoint the biological or adopted sons um, of emperors in filling the political, uh, the imperial college we now refer to as the second tetrarchy. How old would, uh, would Maximian, uh, Maxim, uh, is it Maximian? Am I saying that correctly? The, the, uh, sorry, uh, the co-emperor. Maximian. Maximian, thank you. Maximine. No, Maximian, thank you. Yeah, I think I... Uh... Ma Max, Ma Ma Maximian, um, a very similar age to Diocletian, so um, you know, not, um, you know, not obviously a generation younger, if that's what you're So there wasn't an inherent hierarchy established on their chronological age. No, where, where I'm going with the question is, um, so his, his son comes into, into play at, at some point, and then you also have Constantius's son, Constantine, yeah. right, yes. uh, comes yeah. into play in a big in a big way at at, yes. at some point. How old were the sons um, when the initial uh, change of guard uh, occurred? I see what you mean. And and why I'm asking that is I'm trying to see it where the sons actually suitable as I'm as I'm asking questions around this. Uh, you know, yeah. was it was it was it was it in principle? Uh, di di dynastic or was it just a case of not was it in principle was it not dynastic or was it a case where there just wasn't a family member uh you know a family member to to give the uh the next um uh emperorship to i see i, I see where you're coming from um constantine's birth date isn't absolutely known and in fact he was quite uh, he, he he was quite uh, keen to um promote his own um youth even when that perhaps wasn't uh, wasn't the case, but both Maxentius and Constantine were certainly of age to be plausible candidates for the emperorship in three hundred and five, as it were. So it wasn't as if they were children and considered unsuitable for office um, for, for 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 that reason. And the the, the proof of that, Andrew, is that um, well, within a year and a half, both of those men. Were proclaiming that were were proclaimed as uh, as, as a, a Roman emperor, um, not necessarily well, absolutely not by the uh, in the in the case of Maxentius by the uh, by by the tetrarchy, but by but by the people of Rome, the soldiers and and people in 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 the city of Rome. So he had enough, as it were, um, uh, credibility. Uh, as as an imperial leader to to persuade um, a, a lot of people that he sh he should have been Roman emperor, um, but but uh, but ha but hadn't been appointed as such. So um, he 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 obviously he, the, he, the failure to appoint Constantine um, and Mac and or Maxentius to the second tetrarchy in three hundred and five was not because they were children. Um, and so must have been ve very deliberate, I think, on, be on behalf of Diocletian and, uh, and, and, and Maximian. Okay, so, and you've gone through this material over, over many years. So, so you, you believe that in this period of time, uh, in, in the this, this spirit of selecting the next emperors wasn't from a dynastic um, perspective, but that um, the next emperors were chosen from probably a close circle around the given yes. emperors. Yes, I, th I, th I yes, I think that was that was the political ambition. That was the political ambition in May three hundred and five. So, relatively speaking, the tetrarchy, the concept of the tetrarchy, didn't last that that long. So, what what happened with it? Well, we do know a certain amount about what happened. Um, when the second Tetrarchy came into being in May 305, um, things looked stable and organized with Constantius I and Galerius as the two Augusti and Maximinus Dyer and Severus as the Caesars. But awkwardly, um, for the Tetrarchic model, in, in, in July 306, Constantius I died and his, he died. He was in, the, in northern England at the time, and his troops heralded his son Constantine Augustus themselves without recourse to the tetrarchs. So the troops here were 
kingmakers. They they were claiming the right to 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 um, appoint emperors. Constantine himself was diplomatic enough to see if Galerius, who was left as the sole Augustus after the death of Constantine's father, um, would um, acknowledge his right to 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 the to 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 be emperor. And Galerius said yes. But he gave him the rank of Caesar, and he promoted at the same time Severus to the rank of Augustus. So, the second tetrarchy didn't last very long because Constantius the first died, but was replaced by this third tetrarchy. But the difference between the second and the third tetrarchy is that in the third tetrarchy, one of the men, that is Constantius, uh, sorry Constantine the first, was the son, was the natural son of one of the previous emperors. And so therefore, already, the original tetrarchic desire to not depend upon dynastic succession had been overridden, essentially because soldiers said so. And, uh, and that caused, that precipitated all sorts of problems because within a few months, within three months of the appointment of Constantine the first as emperor um, to, to create the vacancy that his father's death, uh, sorry, to, to fill the vacancy that his father's death had created, the son of another former emperor, that is Maxentius, son of Maximian, proclaimed himself emperor. And that was in the city of Rome. He had the backing of the soldiers there, the Praetorian Guard and the people of Rome. And you can see, again, the principle of the Tetrarchic model is just being completely neglected in, in, in that proclamation there. Then there was an attempt in 308 to patch up the, uh, to patch up the Tetrarchy. Um, this, was, this was further complicated by Maximian's decision that he didn't like imperial retirement and he wanted to come out of retirement and, and, and take up his reins of office as, as an Augustus again. Um, too many individuals competing for power in the years 307 through to the mid-teens of, of the 4th century um, meant that, that, that the Tetrarchic model was no longer workable. And by the time, uh, by, three, by the year 324, monarchy was once again the, uh, the, the established ruling model for the, for the Roman Empire under Constantine I. To wrap up the, uh, the conversation, Roger... Um, and to make sure this gets across then, how many years approximately did the Tetrarchy exist in, in Rome in, this, in, in history? And uh, a closing question is, do you think, given this, the, the milieu in, in Rome in this, in this period of time, do you think it was a worthwhile project, the, the Tetrarchy, uh, to in, invent and, and, uh, and facilitate? Or do you think it was wishful thinking? Um, okay, to go to your first question first there, the date. So the, the Tetrarchy came into being in, in, in 293. It was replaced by the second Tetrarchy, that first Tetrarchy was replaced by the second Tetrarchy in 305, which began to unravel within 18 months. There was an attempt in 308 to kind of put pieces back together uh, again within that second Tetrarchy, but ultimately um, ultimately, it, 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 it failed. And this, in particular, the idea of the hierarchy of two Augusti and two Caesars was 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 just was just finished and every man what every man who claimed imperial office wanted to be recognized as an augustus and so and so so the internal hierarchy was was just finished um by 309 310 you know that that that, that sort of period and then you see deaths of emperors by natural causes or in civil wars um, over the next over the next few years, culminating with the re-establishment of monarchy under Constantine. Now, to go to your second question, um, was it wishful thinking? Yes, there is a great deal of I think there's a great deal of naivety um, in the Tetrarchy. The, te the Tetrarchic principle of uh, of dispersed geopolitical authority with a concordant and sort of uh, coherent government is fantastic in many respects. It, 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 it takes wealth away from sing a single metropolis out into the provinces. It takes political authority out into, out, out into a wider geographical area. Um, it's got, it, 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 there, there is scope there for coherent government in terms of tax collection, defense policy, religious policy, all sorts of things there. 
but it was na- these guys were naive if they thought it would all happen just because they said it should. And what they underestimated, I suppose, was um, what we might now in modern terminology think of a kind of social contract where people are prepared to do what they're told simply because they're told. And, you know, there was a a great deal of resistance to that um, still in what was largely a time of history where kingship not 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 usually called that in the Ro- in roman terms you know the, the latin word for king rex was something of a dirty word so people didn't call their leaders kings but they still had a model in their mind of kingship and the tetrarchy was slow to explain their own policy and to persuade people that this was this radical new form of government was in everybody's interests and i think there's great political naivety um a great political naivety there nonetheless i'm gonna i'm gonna come back here and say nonetheless i do think the experiment was an interesting and laudable one because something had to change after the chaos of the sort of constitutional chaos of the third century now okay diocletian's tetrarchic model lasted less than a generation it is unraveled very quickly but many of the political gains that he established such as the reorganization of provincial government the incre- the increased bureaucratization of the roman world which made more efficient things like tax collection and uh, and and uh, information gathering for census purposes um, and the securing of the Roman frontiers uh, through in- increased spending um, in, in, in frontier in frontier defenses were measures that outlived the tetrarchy you know, outlived the tetrarchy by many decades and you can see you can see in your well into the mid fourth century the benefits of some of the policy measures that the tetrarchy were able to push through um, alive and well not everything succeeded persecution of the christians was a failure and the and the the maximal prices edict which i mentioned earlier another abject failure so some naive policy measures but other aspects of tetrarchic government i think were actually very successful thanks for coming on the show again roger it's always a pleasure to speak with you thanks andrew so again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Reese wrote, Diocletian and the Tetrarchy. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Roger and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.